Hey, what's up, Blazer fans? Welcome to the Blazer's Edge podcast. I am Tara Bowen Biggs, joined, as always, by Blazer's outsider, Danny Morang. Danny, how are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm swell. You know, we're just sitting here waiting on more medical news from another Blazer's Big. So, you know, it's just another week in Portland. <laughs> yeah, you know, it seems like it's been a long time since we've talked, but it seems like a lot hasn't changed. <laughs> yeah, it's like, this. oh, cool, just waiting on the injury report. In cool. Terms right. of sitting around waiting for bad news. But we are not sitting around alone waiting for bad news. We have a guest on the show with us. Misery today. Loves Company. <laughs> Yeah, he's, All right. he's not miserable. Uh, he's Dan Favalli. He is a, a writer for Bleacher Report. He is the deputy editor of NBA Math, and he's also the co-host of Hardwood Knox Podcast. Dan, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you guys for having me. I'm going to try really hard to call Danny Danny and Dan Dan, and we'll see how long I can This last. is why I changed, Tara. <laughs> there's, just, there's not enough Dannys out there anymore. That's why I had to... I had to go back. Well, thank you. I'll try very uh, – Dan, were you ever known as Danny? Uh, my my sisters called me that when I was younger, and they like to think that they could still call me that. But I I, I tried to erase uh, that while I was pretty young still. <laughs> or did you go by we Daniel? We all try to snuff it out. Did either of you guys ever go by Daniel? When I've uh, been in trouble. Yeah, I was say, it's it's parents or uh, uh, police. Those are the only two people <laughs> ever called me Daniel. So, yeah. <laughs> All righty. Well, let's go ahead and get started and tell people that we, we're recording this on Sunday afternoon. And like Dan said, we are, Danny said, we are waiting to hear about Scal. So that news may come out during the taping or it may not. We shall see. It's kind of a big question mark right now. But we wanted to have uh, Dan on the podcast because, Dan, you just put out what I believe was a fantastic um end of the decade piece that you wrote um, for Bleacher Report about the uh, franchise defining moments of the decade for the different franchises. I was lucky enough to be able to have a little bit to contribute to that. Can you tell people about the article, kind of what inspired it and how you went about writing it? Well, first, yeah, your part was much bigger than small. You actually had probably one of the best one-liners in there, and so I, I, we could save that for when we're actually talking about the Blazers moment. But the article itself, uh, it was just a collab between one of my editors and I, and initially uh, my editors wanted me to do reporting reporting on it and get on site and get to different games, and I was just looking at the timeline for the piece and said, it, it just didn't make sense to go after people who were had these direct affiliations with the team. Some of the players who would have been involved in the moments are no longer with them, not even playing to track down that many people um, just in a month, basically would have been too difficult. And then I think what a lot of national people, including myself, sometimes get blinders for uh People who follow teams intimately, they just know them so much better than us. And it was cool to uh, have a sounding board where you went after uh, writers and podcasters who were covering the specific teams. I could tell you, hey, you're not really thinking on the right track or can help you with uh, the tough decisions if you narrowed it down between two or three moments. And that's sort of what inspired the ideas because I wanted to make sure that I covered all bases. And it's just really hard to do that when – you cover the league at large. You just don't know every team as well as people who cover that specific team know them. And so that's what gave me the idea to reach out to individual writers and podcasters. And I was actually overwhelmed with the enthusiasm of the response where I thought I was going to have to deal with a ton of no's and rejections. It seemed like a lot of people were actually happy to, to contribute. So that was a 
I, I wouldn't say surprise, but it was a really nice aspect of doing the piece. Well, now that you talk about it, the uh, you know I thought the logistics of the piece that you did produce were probably quite um, heavy, but the logistics of actually going around and reporting on all of that in a month—that's like a whole other level. <laughs> Yeah, that's how that stuff works sometimes where it's, um, you know, your overlords whom I love my overlords, but they, it always seems like the timelines just for what you initially want or envision that, that it's always not enough. And, you know, the calendar starts for stops for no one. So it wasn't like we had the option of, of pushing it back with 2020 right around the corner. Well, let's start with um, what uh, we wrote or what we came up with for the Blazers. You wrote and was like, okay, here's a couple things that I think may be the defining moments of the decade for the Blazers. And you were like, you have two shots to choose from. <laughs> Basically, two Damian Lillard series ending shots. Um, you know, are, are is one of these them or is there something else? So, like, oh, my God, I was so stressed out thinking about what how I was going to answer this. Um but I did come up with the the second shot for uh, against OKC, and I was really worried that it was recency bias because I imagine that's something that um, everybody who responded to you had to take under consideration. Um, but my ultimate reason was that I felt that the Damian Lillard shot against Houston kind of announced the arrival of the Damian Lillard era, whereas the OKC shot like was the very definition of the... Um, Lillard era. It was like the the manufactured storybook ending. The tune out everything and just put your head down and and do it. And I I just thought that that sort of encapsulated what the Blazers have become as as we approach the end of the decade. But Dan, I'm curious, Danny, Danny, I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> what would be your uh, defining moment for the Blazers for the decade? I I mean. Just to be on brand, I wanted to say something, you know, about Brandon Roy, but it's not. It's it's Dame. It it has to be. Um, he he is gone from the guy that we wondered if he could replace and go beyond what Brandon meant to this franchise to being the probably second, maybe third most important Blazer of all time, and he's done that with not just the biggest clutch moments in franchise history, but some of the biggest and clutch moments in, in NBA playoff history. And I don't, I don't think you can get mad or get frustrated or deflect from, from one shot over the other. Uh, anytime you have a series ending buzzer beater, like, I mean, and the guy has two that, that, that to me is just baffling. So, like the, the the circumstances that come together to, to to make those things happen and to deliver in both opportunities, I, I, it's for me it's a coin toss. I, I guess I probably if I had to choose one, I'd probably side with you on the OKC side, um, just because of the culmination of everything that it meant. Would you go all the way back to the drafting of of him, or even farther back? I think uh, Dan, you suggested that like could it have been the Gerald Wallace trade that gave the Blazers the Lillard pick. You know, one of one of the things in reading the article is a lot of teams kind of traced back to the one moment that led to whatever, you know, the most well-known game time moment was. Um, so what do you guys think about, you know, bringing it all the way back that far? 
I think you can easily do that. And there were some teams, you know, the Giannis Antetokounmpo pick for the Bucks ended up being their selection. Uh, with Dame, it felt a little bit different. I think it definitely could have been an option. Uh, it's just that when he was picked sixth, it was. I, I don't know that he turns into this player necessarily with another organization. He was obviously super talented, but if if it felt like the Blazers took the initiative to give to roll the dice on him a little bit there. And then just the opportunities had. I'm not saying they're responsible for that, but it, it felt like more of the hallmark moments were what he became rather than the, the origin of his story with the organization. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that makes the most sense, right? If you wanted to isolate that singular moment for Portland, I don't know if I would go still go with the drafting of Damian Lillard and more of the anointing of Damian Lillard. Does that make sense? You mean like when LaMarcus left and it became Damien's team? Not just that. It was. I think it was Damien's team the second uh, Olshay said it. And then the opening night against the Lakers. Like he, he came out and it was like, this kid's for real. Like the baby face Dame. Like it's kind of funny when you go back and look at the pictures of him, you know, <laughs> seven years ago now. And it's like, wow, he really looks incredibly young. Like, but he was about that action from day one mm-hmm. and it took, I think a lot of us, it took a couple years to really like go, okay, no, he's not a, uh, an all-star. He's not a, uh, a good player. He's a franchise level top tier guy. And we stopped questioning whether or not he could add something new to his game. But like it was, there was always something about him on the leadership side of things from day one, and I think that's if I, if you're talking about like the like the ethereal part of it, like that's kind of like what I think I just I, I go towards. Mm-hmm. Well, so how about non Damian Lillard related um, def- decade defining moments? I, can you have one, or uh, do you have any <sighs> contenders for that? I mean, Lamarcus leaving. Mm-hmm. Maybe the tower pointed uh, Brandon Waugh spearheading that 23-point comeback in game, I think it was six in, or no, game four in 2011. Four. Yeah. yeah. And I think he only played two more games with the franchise after that. So uh, I think there were some people on Twitter that really wanted that moment to be the selection. They didn't want one of the uh, Lillard shots. And then there was a, a couple people that thought Rodney Hood in that four-overtime thing <laughs> last year uh, should have been should have been a pick. And that, that just took, that took me by surprise because something like that feels just a little more random where Ronnie hood doesn't, you know, he's still there and uh, he's another one who's injured. So that sucks. But like that was, he didn't have like ties to the franchise before that. And so that moment specifically feels a little random. Yeah. That's I've seen a few people talk about that and and, and it being a, a, a bigger moment, I think than it probably is viewed for some people. It may be like the formative moment, but maybe that was the first time that they really, got into the Blazers and got to see a deep run. Cause I mean, it's been 20 years since they made it to the Western conference finals. The impact of that moment could be a little bit different for somebody else, you know, outside of, you know, Tara and I, who kind of grew up with this team, making a pretty regular habit of that. <laughs> so, um, what about, um, I, I, I just, oh, sorry, I, go ahead. No, no I was saying I can imagine that, but I, 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 I think franchise defining moments can be more than positive things. They can be negative things. I mean, Wes Matthews is Achilles. Yeah, that's a good one. Like that, realistically, you talk to people around the league at that time who were looking at that team. If things go their way, that's that's an NBA Finals team. 
Like that's that's one I think that's kind of like your what if scenarios. That's that's a hard one to kind of gloss over. Lamarcus leaving after that, and the other one I think is is kind of pertinent too is that um, because of those injuries, the emergence or because of Wes's injury, the emergence of CJ McCollum and the changing of the guard in that Memphis series. That even though Portland got crushed in it, you saw Dame CJ and at that time Myers Leonard. Um, give a new direction for the team and what kind of laid the groundwork for this version of the team kind of going forward. I want to throw out one more possibility and I can't believe I didn't really think about it before then, but it was the hiring of Terry Stotts. Oh, that's a good one. I mean, yeah, that's, that's, he's the second best coach in franchise history. Like, and he, you know, he uh, together with Damian Lillard set the, the tone for what, how this team was going to do business and how they were going to operate as a team and function as a team. In addition to like, you know, both on the court and off the court, I guess that's when I just thought about right now. And I can't believe that I didn't think about that earlier. I'll still go with the okay shot though. Okay. C shot. I'll still go with that. Did, did it, was it tough for you? Uh, I saw some people saying this and that was, I was originally drawn to the OKC shot and then it was the Houston shot when you answered me and then I read your response and then I tended to agree that it was the OKC shot again. It seems like a lot of people felt though that it was the, the Houston shot just because that was later in the series and there was much less of a guarantee that the Blazers would have made it out of that series then. Mm-hmm. But I still just, uh, the way Tara described it, I think just ended up being the the perfect way to look at it. And then just because the overall playoff run was, was deeper, there's nothing guaranteed in the postseason. you know, okay, it's fine that they were up three to two. That doesn't necessarily mean they're definitely going to win the series. They're going up against a team that still had Paul George. Uh, and I guess if you want to call Westbrook an asset, so it just, I, I don't know. I, I, I did go back and forth, but the way that Tara put it in her response is really what swayed me. And I do think that when we're dealing with just Houston and OKC, I do think that the OKC shot is the right pick. Well, thank you. I appreciate all those nice things that you said. I, I can totally see why people would choose Houston. And I think some of it just depends on how you look at the question. And for me, I looked at it like, um, like the definition of who the, you know, who this team is and what, um, like not what their character is, but like who their identity is. And so I looked at it from that terms, but if you want to look at it, like from a pure basketball term of like, you know, how important was it to hit that particular shot? How hard was that particular shot? And you know, how it actually played out in the, in the game. I can see why people would go with Houston and it just kind of, it's cause I lean more towards narrative rather than, you know, actual basketball plays. That's probably why it kind of, that, that drew me, but it was really fun to think about. It was a, it was a good, good thing. I have a, a question for you over the kind of the course of doing this. One of the things that I really like about it is I've learned so much about other teams through reading it. And I like how you sort of, looked at it through the eyes of people who are, you know, doing this work constantly every day. And so it kind of like what was most important to them. My question for you is, as you were doing this, which ones were the easiest ones that you felt and which ones were the hardest? Uh, The easiest ones were the teams that kind of had those flashpoint titles, the Cavs in 2016, the Mavs in 
2011. Uh, the Raptors, even though they had arguably a, a bunch of other different moments to choose from, you could the culmination in that title um, that felt like the easier one. Uh, so, so those teams were pretty easy. The, the harder ones were um, the franchise that seemed to have like almost too many options. And so my goal was to like narrow it down a little bit before I contacted everyone. And so when I'm dealing with, with the Celtics, there's just so many different layers to, to what's happened with them. Uh, the warriors mostly for good reasons, but everything since getting rid of Mark Jackson, there've just been so many of those uh, landmark occasions. And then even the Lakers, I was pretty bullish on the CP three trade being the selection for them. Um, but there were people that wanted it being Jeannie bus, um, firing her brother, uh, the ultimate pick by, uh, <laughs> Eric Pincus, who I talked to about it, he went with the Kobe Achilles and, and the free throws, which that makes sense. Um, you that also was really had interesting to... read. I thought that was a super interesting look at that, mo- like kind of the flashpoint of the uh, of the franchise. Yeah, and I think I, I might have still leaned. I think I still leaned towards the CP3 trade at the end, but uh, they had he made the point of it would have been easier to come back from the failed CP3 trade than Kobe's torn Achilles, and so those teams three just stood out as the hardest because they had so many different selections. And, you know, with the Celtics, I was surprised that Alex Kungu didn't go with uh, that Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce trade, which really set up the Celtics. He made a case for Isaiah Thomas. And then you read it and you're like, well, damn, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so that's part of the reason why I was happy that I was able to go the route that I did to talk to people who are smarter than me that could sway me in the situations that needed it. Well, I think you're selling yourself short. I think you're plenty smart. <laughs> I've listened to enough of your podcast and read a lot of your stuff. I have one last question about this particular article. And that was, as you were doing it, do you have a singular or maybe just a couple um, moments that you think define the NBA for the decade? Yeah, I think two probably stand out to me. And, and the one that I leaned the most strongly toward is – the moment that we saw the the big three celebration in Miami, I know there have been superstars before uh, super teams before, excuse me, but that really kicked off like the superstar empowerment era for the NBA. When you look at everything that kind of happened after does, does Kevin Durant feel uh, emboldened enough to go to the warriors after losing to them in the playoffs? If LeBron didn't not just leave Cleveland for Miami, but then leave Miami again before that. And then you can even look at, the, the seeming influx of trade requests after that, where the mellow trade uh, with Denver happens the season right after CP three is the following season. Uh, the Dwight mayor was there. And then all of a sudden these trade demands became so commonplace that we talk about a player's free agency two or three years in advance, because the assumption has to be that if they have one or two years left on their deal, you have to look at moving them. Otherwise they're going to leave. And that felt like the, the big three and that celebration, just the, you know, the, the ostentatiousness of it all and just the, the superstar uh, power of it all that I think is probably the, the decade defining moment for me. But I also think you have to look at the warriors and there was, I feel like it's a lesser known moment. So you, it might not be the pick, but they raced. I, I think it was that 23 point comeback against the Clippers in November, 2015. And that was, yes, it's after they won their first title, but that's when you really started looking at that team. It's like, Oh, 73 wins is in play and they might just be a special kind of inevitable that we've never seen before. And they ended up running the tables for so long going on to get Durant and all that. So those are the two that kind of stand out most, but to even pin it down to a few moments for the decade is obviously incredibly difficult. Right. This, this was a very fast moving deck decade. It feels like, right. you know, when you think about how like the internet grew, it was like a little bit here and a little bit there. And then suddenly it exploded. That's, 
kind of what I feel like the NBA has done in the last few years. Dan, do you have any thoughts on uh, NBA defining or, you know, moments that define the NBA for the decade? Yeah, I think what Dan had to say, particularly about as far as like player empowerment, player movement is the kind of the bigger thing is like and I think it's the the hard shift is already kind of taking place where people are getting tired. I mean, I at least I am and I know plenty of other folks are of hearing a national broadcast talk about where Giannis can go <laughs> and like and like the culpability that the media play in that. Like the as as opposed to like I think one of the things that I think is going to set up the, this decade for the next decade is how we digest content and games themselves and like where the defining line is about talking about games versus talking about memes and the off the court stuff and Kuzma's trainer. And like, should that kind of thing just, you know, cross the line of where, you know, media go ask LeBron about those kind of things. I think that's kind of the, the I think the, like the, again, like the whole like overarching theme of like the NBA of like, what happens with those things kind of going forward. As I think we've kind of reached a bit of a tipping point, like you said, Tara, like the, the NBA and how it's being covered and how it's being talked about and what's going on has kind of mimicked the rise of the internet. And with that, you kind of open some doors. You, you maybe you wish you wouldn't have. <laughs> so um, I, I think that's going to be uh, an interesting discussion about how that kind of stuff kind of goes, goes going forward. Not necessarily as it pertains to like the actual on court incident or on court action. Well, and it's almost like uh, I totally agree that the the decision was probably should probably be considered like the defining moment. But I was trying to think of mm-hmm. something else besides that. And kind of what I came up with was just the rise of all of the options for people to interact, to discuss the NBA. And I don't know how you would, you know, narrow that down, but it's like maybe the rise of NBA Twitter or the availability of all of the statistics to at people's fingertips so that anybody can go and look up all that stuff. Yeah. And right. just kind of the popularization of the commentary, I guess, you mm-hmm. know, so it's like, instead of us just sitting next to each other in bars and having these discussions, we're like having these discussions with people from all over the world now. And that just kind of, I think sort of defines what happened in the, in the decade. And like, if the, also if the decision didn't happen, like, do we look at the off season as just as interesting and entertaining as the season? <laughs> I mean, if we do, but you know what I mean? Like, do we look at all the things that are not actual, actually taking place on the court? Do we look at them the same way, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that we do now? It'd be interesting to see what might be considered the year or even the moment where the, as both of you kind of mentioned, the tenor of the coverage shifted or where it became so I I guess like normal for the jokes to take center stage. Like Mm -hmm. I feel like the conversation didn't totally shift after that heat team was formed. It still felt like superstar trade requests kind of caught you off guard, but you know, the meme culture type of stuff was that, did that start when Deandre Jordan was held hostage in 2000? Yeah. That was to say the banana boat hostage situation is I think when it, when it really, that's when it took off. Yeah, that might have been when it. Sh- I mean, that it does seem like there's just been that surfeit of coverage off the court from there. So that may- maybe that is. A- I don't even think I That's mentioned the, the banana boat moment in the piece. <laughs> That's a shame. You always have to find a way to work the banana boat in, man. Yeah. 
right. Uh, we take a little bit of a shift here and talk a little bit more Blazers focused. Um, but we wanted to get your perspective as, you know, quote unquote, the outsider, not the outsider outsider. I, I don't know. This is the outsider. You're an outsider not, not outsider, Danny. Dan is the outsider outsider. That's how it works. We'll market it that way. <laughs> That's, I'll pitch that to NBC. Um, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, yeah, well, it's, it's a soft one. Um, but I, I want to hit on one that's just been burning up Blazers Twitter the last, I don't know, 72 hours, maybe a little bit longer. And that's the position the Blazers are in right now. Not just the injuries, but their record and the likelihood of trades and all of these things swirling around them. And But the thing that everybody seems to want to argue about right now is how good or not good Terry Stotts is as a head coach. So without knowing how you view Stotts, from the outside looking in, not just this year, but over his tenure and then this year, uh, how do you view Stotts as a coach? I think he's an excellent coach, and it's. I did see there was a conversation going on in the the mailbag uh, solicitation that you sent out before this podcast. I'm actually shocked that not being as plugged in as like you know the Blazers fans conversation that people are unhappy with him, and that this would be the year that it sort of comes to bear. Uh, <laughs> the Blazers have used more starting lineups this season than they did all of last year already. You're dealing with all these injuries. You signed. Carmelo Anthony, who's been good, especially relative to not playing basketball for over a year. But that's the point that you reached. And, you know, we look at they they definitely have some defensive problems and it'd be nice for them to have a center that feels like he could rebound on a consistent basis. But I almost look at their numbers and I watch the, the Blazers Lakers game on Saturday night. And I sometimes how are they not worse? Like, I feel like they should be worse than they actually are. And that's yes. a credit to him. And you look at all the bigs that have sort of come through the door recently uh, and it's canner last year. Like that dude is one of the worst defenders I've ever seen. And he looked at times in Portland, like kind of sort of not crappy. And mm-hmm. I want to give Terry Stotts coach of the year just for doing that. So it amazes me as an outsider that people would be that frustrated with him now of all seasons when they're also dealing with uh, all this adversity with, when looking at the number of games they've lost to injuries. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm kind of trying to – I'm curious about where do you all guys think that some of this could be coming from? And what I'm – like what, some of the themes that I keep uh, seeing crop up are, you know, the Blazers are very isolation-based and that the the, the the Blazers have pretty much the entire time Stotts has been around almost always been at the very bottom in terms of assists – so do you think people could be looking at that going, you know what, that is no longer working right now? Okay, yeah, that, that's, that's uh, it's a great question because it's something that uh, the overarching theme of like where this, this comes from is something I've kind of wanted to hit on a little bit more. Uh, I've been talking back and forth with, with Krishna Narsu, who does a lot of analytics stuff uh, in, in the NBA. Uh, I'm sure, Dan, you know who he is. Uh, yeah, for sure. But who? the whole idea, Krishna Narsu, okay. um, He's worked for a couple teams um, and done some some background stuff. Incredibly talented, uh, but, but he was just highlighting some things that thoughts that I always had that I was pretty certain were you know held true that there was a, a pretty solid correlation to. But I had never really dug into far enough to really get you know anything behind it. But it's the idea that 
the more egalitarian method of offense, the everybody gets a touch equally stuff really doesn't mean a damn thing. It, it, it really doesn't. There's almost there's almost no correlation to a successful offensive ball movement. It's about putting your best players in a position to succeed. That's more important. Um, having let's use the Blazers as a as an example, and let's give them let's make them fully healthy. Having the ball be in Zach Collins's hands at the three point line doesn't do anything necessarily for Portland's offense just because the ball was moved to him in an open position. Now, if he's got a year under his belt and he's shown to be a a more uh, successful and and, uh, consistent three-point threat, sure, down the line, that that could certainly be something that causes gravity, uh, that causes a defense to shift. But like, the guys before him, like Harkless, like Aminu, getting him in those, getting those guys in those positions, and getting them the ball, and having them take a shot that opponents are going to live with because of the inconsistencies, that's perfectly and totally fine. It's it's why you see the Denver Nuggets uh, was it two weeks ago, fully live with Hassan Whiteside getting a career high because they did not care about him scoring because the impact of him scoring and taking guys like Damon CJ out of the offense is much more important than sending a second help defender to take out a Hassan Whiteside around the rim because they'll gladly trade a slowed down game from the Blazers offense for threes on the other end and higher tempo. That's just the reality of it. But the correlation between how guys get the ball, where they get the ball, when they get the ball, how often they get the ball and how effective an offense actually is. There's almost no correlation. None. I wonder if people are starting to get, tired of watching it though i mean when you look at other teams that's kind of what i wanted to hear like from dan like what is it like you know flying in and watching like you know one game of the blazers going whoa they are really not moving the ball around well it's there i I guess people want to see things and that's the point you make that it looks nice like they, they care about the aesthetics but the blazers aren't the rockets with what they're doing with james harden and so they're it's leaning on it's, it's quite literally half as much. So yeah. Right. And so the, it's also their offense is geared toward their personnel because not all teams it's, you know, the correlation matters too, but as does the personnel is just like there, if you look at the jazz or at least before this season, look at the jazz, you know, they didn't have the personnel where you can go and play like the blazers do now, but you have CJ McCollum, you have Simons. Now you have Melo and you have Damian Lillard, obviously you, you lean on your strengths. And so, you know, this season, I know it's a career high, but Damian Lillard's averaging 1.13 points per ISO possession. That's basically a top five offense. Just looking at that one number. And if he can do that, that's great because this isn't something that I think is always statistically backed up, but it does feel like, uh, that those offenses that Danny was just talking about, uh, they can be a little bit more breakable in the playoffs where the 2014 Spurs are just one of those exceptions where that, uh, the, the great aesthetics, just the ball movement, that stuff, it worked. It took down the Goliath, but it doesn't always work. There's something to having this superhuman shot maker who can make something out of nothing. And then from there, it's it's just about the decisions you make. And maybe the, the Rockets would be eminently more watchable now that James Harden's being trapped if some of their supporting cast members, call off Russell Westbrook, could stop you know junking <laughs> these jumpers when he's throwing them wide open. With the Blazers, I think this was a big – and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but after that Pelican series, 
uh, it just seems that he was making a lot of better decisions in terms of moving the ball when he was getting trapped or when there were all these guys around him. And so they didn't have to change the way they played. He just made some tweaks. And so those smaller plays, it makes to me the Blazers more watchable and it's going to make for that more efficient offense in the, in the long run. Dame spent the entire summer dealing with two particular things. One extending his range. So the trap had to come out further to put pressure on him and one and two learning how to split the double split that trap. Like if that doesn't tell you everything, Devin you Booker has no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> he sees that stuff all season. He doesn't want to see it in the summer. Yeah. No, he doesn't want to see it in the summer, that's, but that's what Dan spent an entire summer doing is so that he could make better decisions to make better actions out of that, uh, the, the defenses that are thrown at them. And that's why the Blazers made the moves that they did in this offseason was to try to alleviate some of that pressure. And I, I'm glad you brought up the Spurs. Cause I, they always kind of slipped my mind when talking about the, again, that egalitarian, everybody gets a touch equal opportunity offense and that those Spurs and those warriors exist in an entirely different plane of existence because guess how many hall of famers were on those teams, right? Like it's not the fact that the ball is moving that made those teams good. It's the fact that the ball is moving between four different hall of famers who also can play off it. I don't think you can say that about a lot of the stars, you know, look at what has happened to Russell Westbrook a lot in Houston. When they displace him from the ball, you couldn't do stuff that the Spurs and the warriors did with, with him. If you wanted to No, that context matters. And as I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm I'm watching my Twitter feed and and people are, are arguing about the fact that the Blazers should be getting more out of what they've gotten this year. And I'm glad you said that, that the idea that this team should probably be doing worse than they are stands out to you because I I don't think people truly understand. And I I want this to come from you, like from, from what your thought is, what is the drop-off between your top six, seven guys in the rest of the rotation? I'm not just talking about the Blazers. I'm just talking about in general. When you're talking about, look about looking at an NBA team, how much drop-off do you see from the top end of the, of the roster to the, the actual rotation guys at that 8, 9, 10 spot? I think there's a pretty, in most cases, a, a sizable drop-off. Even if you're looking at teams that have excellent benches, you know, the, the Mavericks, there's a huge drop off, I think between their first two best players and then just basically the rest of their roster. It's just that sometimes, you know, the depth obviously matters and teams can be just the sum of, of their parts, but there's always that drop off is always going to exist. Now move all of your, um, six, seventh and eighth guys into <laughs> Number three, four, and five. <laughs> there you go. And that was the, that was the point I was, I was going to go to make in that you take a look at what this Portland team has done this year. And I, I was building out the rotations and I, I just, I'm looking at an article that I did back in July and I've got pretty close with my minutes projections. 36 for Dame, 35 for CJ, 28 for hood. 28 for Collins, 28 for Whiteside, and then a mixture of, you know, 20 plus for Simons, Bazemore, uh, Hazonia, and Gasol. And you look at, I didn't have Tolliver, Gary Trent Jr., Nasir Little, or Scal getting rotation minutes. So you remove Powell entirely, you move Hazonia entirely, you move Collins entirely, you move Hood entirely, and now you have four guys five really because they had to bring up Moses and, and scowl. I, I, you move those guys into there and it's one of those situations where it's like, yeah, you're going to see drop off, right? 
I don't know why you didn't believe in Scal Dan me, Danny. I've been talking I, about him since this summer. I love Scal. I love Scal. It was about opportunity and Powell's not signing in Portland if he's going to play behind Scal. That's just the reality. But <laughs> like, speaking of big men, you want a controversial topic outside of Terry Stotts here in Portland, Dan. Uh, Hassan Whiteside, uh, what has been your takeaway from what he has done on the floor, the box score argument, the whole ar- ar- arching theme of Whiteside, and what do you think Portland ends up doing with him at the deadline? I don't. I honestly don't know what they're going to end up doing with him at the deadline because they really, that's going to be an inflection point for them just because how, where are they going to be in the standings where they, they, they're ready. They're ready made to complete a big deal, but is it worth going all in this season? I I honestly don't know at that point. Will they have enough time to maybe enter the conversation for even a, even a five seed? It doesn't really seem particularly likely. And if they're going to hover around, you know, seven or eight all year, or if they can get up to sixth, which they're six and a half games back of, as we record this, how much is it worth it there? I do not like watching Hassan Whiteside play basketball though. (laughs) I, that's just, I I will, I'll just flat out say that I don't see enough defensive discipline from him on a consistent basis. At least Um, I did. I don't know that I necessarily appreciated the trade. When you look at, they gave up Harkless and Leonard for Whiteside. I do appreciate that they felt they could bring in someone like Whiteside because they have Damian Lillard and you haven't, at least I haven't seen anything about, you know, him griping behind the scenes. And he seemed like a very tough player to keep happy ever since he signed that contract in mm-hmm. was that 2016 or 2017, whenever it was. Yeah. So, uh, but I just watching him, I don't think that he adds like real value to, to any basketball team. I just don't, you know, maybe I'm just clouded by his price point right now, or maybe I'm also clouded by, I had no idea, like what, from what I've seen of uh, LaBCA this year before he got injured, I just had no idea that he could move. Like I've seen him move on defense. And so maybe that just not seeing uh white side, being able to do things like that, perhaps that clouds my judgment, but I have not really been, been impressed. I, I, he's, I think he can be an asset on the offensive end just for, for what he does. But defensively, I think you need more of an anchor, someone who's just better at communicating and, and directing guys and who's just more consistent and dependable. When you say that you're not uh, a huge fan of, of, of what he's done here so far, um, how do you rationalize the people or how do you communicate that to people who no, how, how do you, exactly. How do you explain it to folks who, when they see a uh, a nineteen sixteen and five night? I th- I mean it's it is tough because those numbers are good, but does he make the Blazers' defense noticeably better when when he's on the court? You know, who cares if you? I mean, you said it before. Who cares if Hassan Whiteside gets twenty points? Like he's not really in theory. He's not there for his his offense. He's there because mm-hmm. he's supposed to be at least this this rim protector. And so if you don't have a better defense, I'm not saying top tier because I know there's the, there's issues for them on the perimeter as well. But if their defensive rating is going to be, I know you're playing against starters, but that's kind of the point of why you pay Hassan Whiteside. He's going up against the better competition. And so your defensive numbers should reflect that, um, you know, opponents are getting to the rim a ton less when he's on the floor, that your defensive rating is better. And this season, I haven't checked the rim numbers specifically in a few weeks, but overall defensively, their defensive rating is higher when he's on the court. And I just, don't, that's not even, is that something we saw with Nurk last year when he was spending a ton of time with McCollum and Lillard? I just don't think it was. And, and so I'm, I'm kind of just exhausted of the Hassan Whiteside talk. It, I, I think 
most of the conversations go beyond the the box score numbers, but he seems like one person who survived pretty nicely um, on the people who still look at that and say, oh, you know, he had 20 and 13 or, or ever many rebounds he grabbed. So uh, it's I, I just don't again, I don't I'm not a fan of watching his son Whiteside play basketball. And I I feel like kind of an idiot saying that, but that's just where I've been at for probably like two or three years at this point. I mean, you're not alone in that sentiment. So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, and I would just the thing that I would say is that, you know, who wins the game does depend on who gets the most points. So I want Hassan Whiteside scoring as many points as he can. I'm not as convinced by the blocks and the rebounds, but I'll take his points all day long. (laughs) I mean, that's a that that is that is a good point. That's somebody has to get them. That, 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 I think that's a the counter argument is like, well, he's a Nurk replacement, and what else did you expect? And it's like, I, I get that, but I think it's all it's it's fair to say that if you get seventy five percent of Nurkic out of Whiteside, that it's a success. But I think it's also fair to also criticize him where the, the shortcomings are coming from. Um, speaking of shortcomings, the Blazers have had giant holes. Oh, no, no I, I'm not going where you think. I was just saying the Blazers have had giant holes at the power forward position with a pile of injuries, and Carmelo Anthony has stepped up into that role. That's all I was going. I was, I was, I was nicely saying the Blazers have been wounded. Not that Carmelo Anthony is a giant shortcoming. Not that I had that thought at all. Um, <laughs> but – uh, Dan, when you, when you look at Mello and not to rehash the whole situation, but like when you look at him and how he has been now, he's actually played more games for the Blazers this season than the, you know, he's passed the 50, you know, 50% mark. He's played more than 50% of the season with the team. So the team has actually played more with Mello this year than they have, you know, or they haven't without him. Um, what's been your takeaway as far as how he's integrated into the team, what he means to the team and does he end up getting another shot again with either Portland or another team next year? If he keeps playing like this, I would be, unless he wants to retire, which doesn't sound like he does. I'd be surprised if he didn't uh, stay with the Blazers or if he signs with a team that's willing to give him more money, but best of luck to that team that decides to pay uh, an age 50 Carmelo Anthony. I, I I've been just impressed. I mean, when, if you just look at the, like the raw numbers, if, if this guy who didn't play basketball for over a year comes back and gives you 16 points while shooting 40% from the three point line, that's absolutely huge. And it doesn't matter if he can't really move on defense or if his rebounding is just dropped off uh, by an incredible margin. I've also been interested just from what I've seen of him in the blazers that maybe there's something to the give and take of his offensive profile, where I think what was really missed before he came to Portland is that he was taking the shots and was in the role when he was on the court uh, that people wanted him in for years when he was with OKC and the Houston Rockets, he was taking a ton of these catch and shoot looks, not dribbling uh, as much as he used to. He just wasn't shooting them at a high clip and the blazers while Carmelo is not scoring well off the dribble or hitting a ton of his pull-up jumpers uh, inside the arc. They let him take those. And maybe because they're just used to um, guys create singular individuals creating for themselves anyway. And so they're not looking to, to move the ball as much. Maybe that makes it easier for them, but perhaps that helps get him in, in rhythm in a way, even though he's not making the shots, but at least taking them. And then the other thing where it, this might come back to the stats conversation where I don't know why people criticize him. He's screening a lot more like this is someone he's not scoring well if they use him specifically as the role man, but he's averaging almost two role man possessions a game, finishing them them anyway. 
anyway, and he's screening a ton more. And I think Zach Lowe wrote about this at ESPN that the Blazers offense, when Melo is kind of, kind of screening in that situation, it's actually done really well as a team. And so the fact that he's been able to do that because there were calls dating back to his time in New York, where people wanted to see more of that. It's a credit to him and a credit to the Blazers. I think, I don't know how much he ultimately helps them, but they need bodies. And this is someone again, who's given them efficient, efficient, excuse me, three point shooting thus far. And I I think that's a win in itself. When you look at what they're paying him. Yeah. If if you're getting, you know, a guy for 15,000 a game uh, to go out there and give you 14, 15, points a night. I'd say it's probably one of the better values in the league, uh, even with some of the shortcomings. I mean, just, that's just kind of the way it works out. Uh, we only got you for a few more minutes, so I want to, I want to hit you on, on, on my guy, um, Anthony Simons. Um, a lot of expectation was kind of bestowed upon him, both locally and nationally coming into the season came out, came out of the gates pretty hot. And then the arrival of Carmelo may have put a little bit of a damper on him. Uh, but over the last two weeks or so, he's kind of put it back together again. When you look at a young guy uh, and how they develop in their first couple of seasons, what are the things that you're, you're most hoping to see uh, over the course of a year? And, and when you look at a guy like Anthony, what, what are the things that you like that you don't like that you, or you want to see him develop uh, more of going forward? Well, one of the things I like, and this might be a way of, of just oversimplifying uh, prospect evaluation, but if you want someone to be this high end player in the NBA, it's interesting to see how they fare when they're put in more complicated positions where it's, can he hit these, you want to say tough shots, but can he create for himself and really work off the dribble? And I discussed this with Tara. I think it was over the off season or as we were closing in over the off season that in the moments we even saw from him last year, and now from this year, that ability to create off the dribble is still there, even though the efficiency is not. And so a lot of what he's doing and he has picked up his efficiency over the past couple of weeks, but like you said, but it, it doesn't, the efficiency doesn't necessarily matter to me. If he looks comfortable hitting those mm-hmm. jumpers off the, or taking those jumpers off the dribble, that's important. And I, I think is probably the, the hardest uh, infrastructure to develop for a young player. And so that would lead me to believe that in time, uh, he's going to be this just excellent score. Just that's head and shoulders above where he's really at now. I think these are probably, I would say obvious shortcomings, or I'm sure ones that national people like myself focus on. It's, you know, can he get to the foul line more or can he be the guy in a lineup by himself where you can trust him to not just score for himself, but initiate the rest of the offense and kind of bring up his, his assist totals. And that's, you know, a lot of that's going to just need, uh, he needs more reps in those situations, obviously, but the blazers in general, it'd be nice if they could get to the free throw line more. And if your third best scorer is someone that can do that for you, particularly if he's going to go up against uh, bench units, that could end up being a, a huge swing piece for them down the line. No, it's music to my ears. That's what I love hearing. So all he, that to me is it's he, not he, as long as I thought it would be. So Keep all the praise you want on young Anthony Simons. That's I, I haven't been as excited about a, about a prospect in a long time as I have about Ant. So uh, I shouldn't say too long of a time because Donovan Mitchell was on that list a couple of years ago. <laughs> Do you guys? Have you seen the people that seem concerned that they have I, when we're talking about Simons's next contract, I guess that's something to think about, but everyone just thinks that they can't have McCollum Simons and Lillard long-term. Do you guys, uh, you know, subscribe to that at all? Is that something you really think about? Or is that to me, that seems more of a money issue when he's going to be up for not even just the extension, but when he hits RFA, than it is a, a functional issue of playing three guards together. Ah, uh. Tara, go ahead. I'd say we have different opinions on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, 
I, th- I, the kind of the way it is often talked about here is can Dame and CJ, um, uh, play alongside of each other and both be as effective as possible. Um, because I think a lot of people think that, uh, CJ is good enough that he could have his own team. He makes a lot of money. And if the Blazers are going to have the opportunity to bring in someone who is less uh, duplicative of skills and has more complementary skill set, then uh, trading CJ McCollum is kind of the best opportunity for that. And Anthony Simons is a ready-made person who can step into that role that CJ has historically played. Is that are you is that a, a okay characterization of sort of how the argument goes? I think it's it's pretty good. I, I think the the people who are maybe a little bit further to the edge, like myself, were a little bit surprised to see the big time narrative being how good Anthony is going or projects to be, and how much talent he has, and um, how valuable he's going to be to the franchise going forward so much so that even Damian Lillard came forward and said something, which whether you want to believe stuff like that or not, Dame's pretty choosy with his words when, as far as like bestowing that kind of recognition, um, he, he hasn't done with it, done that with any of the other young guys that have been alongside him. Um, but I was a little bit surprised when they re-upped CJ's deal early after right on the heels of this big Simon's push. Um, normally I think, and maybe, maybe you'll disagree, Dan, is that when you've got a guy that you're trying to feature a little bit more, you're, you, you clear the runway for that guy, not put an additional three years of a guy in front of him. No, I would agree. I would agree with both. Every, what both of you said, <laughs> your, 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 your last point too, Danny is, is interesting because I think you look at these three guys and they, they definitely can work together offensively. Uh, but defensively there's issues because neither McCollum uh, nor Simons is really going to excel if they have to be put on the bigger wings. And and so that's an issue, but would you view that the extension I think caught probably everybody by surprise, but would you view that as maybe a, a vote of confidence that they think they could make it work long-term or do you just view that as th- they just did it? And that, that was so that they could figure this out down the line when they had more clarity on Simons in general. I think I'm, I'm going with door number two there. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to say it's probably more of like, Hey, let's, let's do this. We have the ability to do it. Now we know who something that's also probably playing a part in the background is that the Blazers come off a Western conference finals run. They have new ownership in Jody Allen. Um, and maybe you're trying to ride that wave a little bit. And so you've got an owner that maybe feels a little bit more secure. You get a little bit extra money from the Western conference finals run. You're feeling good about yourself. Maybe you go, Let's go ahead and, and and make sure we get both these deals done for Damon CJ. I was perfectly fine with the Damian Lillard one. I mean, fifty million dollars in that final year is a lot. I don't even. I try not to get like nostalgic or just like emotionally attached when I'm viewing it like that. But I didn't even. I was just like, yeah, if you're the Blazers, you do that ten times out of ten. That was just yeah. my my zoomed out stance on it. No, I, I, if if you're in Portland and you're talking, you're questioning about Damian Lillard getting a max deal. I, I have a, a perfectly usable cannon to shoot you into Canada with. <laughs> well, this has been such a great discussion, Dan. Thanks so much for joining us. We told you we promised that um, we would have you out of here so that you can continue on with the rest of your day. So uh, before you go, do you want to tell folks where they can find your work? 
Uh, probably just follow me on Twitter. That's where I'll promote everything from uh, all the other stuff, from all the stuff I'm doing. It's just at Dan Favalli, my name. Nothing crazy. Okay, well, we do have several questions that we got from people on Twitter. So let's be disciplined, get through all of them, and uh, get started. Our first question is from Stotts Hater Slayer Crusader, also known as At Gamian Skillard. Um, that's a pretty awesome name. There's, there's, a, there's a theme going, I think, around just uh, Twitter right now. I think that uh, Stotts has uh, a lot of people to defend him, which I'm very glad for. Um, but anyway, the question is, uh, if Scal is out for more than just a few games, what should be fair expectations for Moses? Stay so, on the floor? Say that again? Stay on the floor? Stay on the floor. Like, legitimately, just be a body that offers some sort of resistance. Like, so what does he have to, what does he have to do to stay on the floor? What gets him like, nope, we can't even use him at this point. No, no, we're beyond that. Okay, it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter. Uh, he's he's seven foot one with a pterodactyl like wingspan and good defensive instincts. So I talked to a few people that were talking about Moses um, coming into this season, and they said defensively he's playable in the NBA right now. Now that can vary what that means, but. He understands how to anchor a defense, how to make fundamental reads in the pick and roll, um, the ice concept and that whole idea of being the the last line of defense is not something he's going to be unfamiliar with. Where things are going to get dicey is when you ask him to step outside that role or to really do anything offensively. Okay. Like outside of setting a screen, even then I'm not so I haven't seen enough of him to know how well he's going to set a screen. Because when I look at Moses, he is enormous um, and he is so big that he's got the higher hips of guys like Porzingis and Bull Bull or when you're so big and your legs are so long, your center of gravity is a little bit higher than everybody else's. And so your ability to set those screens and, and be solid in, in those kind of those kind of places can be a little bit limited. Mm, uh, so it's one of those things I, I worry about a little bit, but the Blazers have gotten by with some pretty crappy screen setting this year. So, well, eh. so and the thing with Scal lately is we have seen him more playing alongside Hassan Whiteside as the four. Now, do you think they're going to go back to, you know, well, Moses back just sincerely just <laughs> just only backing up Hassan. Yeah, no, they, they, no they're so the four. they're so thin now, and there's just no way they can afford to do that. Uh-huh. Like if Hassan gets in foul trouble, they have to have somebody who can come in. Um, uh, we're going to see probably a healthy dose of Tolliver Hazonia at the four, and that's just the re- that, or it's going to be uh, more time for Nasir. Like it's just, so there's been a lot of changes since your initial uh, lineups that you came out with in, in July. <laughs> to say the least, yeah, there's been a few changes. Well, we're, we're, still, we're still waiting on word about Scowl, and I want to just linger on it for just a minute because one of the things that you know always goes through my mind when these guys get these injuries, and we don't know, you know, maybe – 
maybe it's not as bad as it looked uh, and, you know, he'll be back soon, but uh, I'm just kind of preparing for the worst. And the first thing I think of after is, oh, my God, is his mom in town? The second thing I think of is what is his contract <laughs> situation? Um, yeah. You know, with Nurkic, he had just signed a four-year contract extension, and so he was in a place where that wasn't a concern. Uh, where do things sit with Scal right now? Well, Scal's deal's ending at the end of this year, and it's a qualifying offer, restricted free agent status. So um, the worst news possible for him is probably a torn ACL, um, but it's not a ruptured Achilles. Mm-hmm. So... Um, as bad as torn ACL sounds, and it's not good, um, in today's world, in today's physical therapy world, in today's treatment world, especially for, for top tier professional athletes, ACL's seven, nine months. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these guys are coming back even more explosive than they were before. Yeah. It's not That's, one of those injuries where you go, Ooh, is he ever going to be able to be the 10 same? years ago? You're wondering, ah, what's this mean for him going forward? Mm-hmm. Now it's like, ah, he'll be fine. Like it sucks that he's out, but he'll be fine. It's it's, it's kind of wild, but um, well, yeah, it's it's definitely a question. And I was having this discussion with uh, with Chad doing just the other night um, about what Scal means to this team. And uh, one of the questions he had was, um, "Is Scal better than anybody else that you could pick up in, in free agency?" And I, I kind of wanted to push back a little bit on it because I think when you find a guy who like Scal and hell, like Nurkic, maybe you're a little bit lost and they need to find the right team. I think the situation really matters for a team. And with all of the injuries Portland has had, let's, let's look at it this way. If Portland was entirely healthy and Scal was your second or third big off the bench, how, how successful of a rotation do you think you have? I think that's pretty good. As far as the big men go, I, I think that's pretty solid. Um, he probably moves up a spot because Portland, you know, moves Whiteside, and maybe they get a four back in return. Maybe might go three, but regardless, that's still that's still my point stands. And that if your team, if you're questioning your depth of your team, and you have the opportunity to pick up a guy who fits how you want to pl- a big man to play, and all of a sudden you maybe find a little bit more in them, I, I think it's probably wise to at least consider the option of keeping him around. So are you saying that you aren't, aren't convinced that there would be somebody better to replace scowl back when he was healthy? Yeah. And I think, and I think that's, that's the question that Portland has to ask himself is how much more time could they afford? Because right now they're probably carrying hood into the season next year, not ready to go on opening night. And is it, if, you know, Scal goes under the knife right now, mm-hmm. he'd probably be back just in time for the season. Mm-hmm. I, 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 the thing about Scal that I think has made him especially valuable to this blazer team is that he was able to do all the little things that they needed him to do. And he was never necessarily able to do them the best, but he could do what needed to be done. Um, he had a lot of versatility. So like he wasn't out there just like eating up rebounds like Whiteside does or like blocking anything and everything like uh, Whiteside does. He wasn't even scoring as much, but he was doing those little things like 
they, you know, uh, he could do a bounce pass through, you know, <laughs> through mm-hmm. through traffic. Uh, he could, with a little bit more confidence, step back and take a three, although he's having a career low uh, sh- three-point shooting. Um, he could do all these little things, none of them, but none of them the best, but enough to fill in, you know, again, like a Swiss army knife. He was the Swiss army knife, and now they don't have that anymore. Ooh. So maybe Moses will be the new Swiss army knife. What do you Swiss, think is the what do you think is Swiss the, Dutch army knife? I don't know. What, what, what are we going with here? Do you have any thoughts on a ceiling for Moses? Like if you were just like, you know, your dream scenario for him. Uh, what do you think a ceiling could be? High level defensive okay. bench pig. Mm-hmm. But like, I don't think the off like is, is I don't think the offense is ever going to be there. Like good enough on defense that he could actually make up for some of the lack of offense. I mean, because we've we talked yeah, a lot. Maybe pushing it. Like, okay. <laughs> I, I I think your your best bet is probably a less nimble, but more uh, team scheme friendly defensive nature of like Nerlens Noel. Mm-hmm. Um, Nerlens had a lot of talent, but. Uh, he chased a lot of blocks, chased a lot of rebounds, didn't really play within the scheme. I think Moses is the kind of guy because he's just got pretty natural size and, and instincts where if he played within the scheme, he's 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 a playable defensive bench big. Mm-hmm. OK, well, let's just keep uh, our best thoughts on Scal and wait to see what we learn. Uh, maybe next week we'll be laughing because we were so worried and it just turned out to be nothing. Who knows? Um, let's move on to the next. And we question. have, we have Scal results. Oh, we do. He's out. Uh, team announces results of the MRI on Scal's left knee are inconclusive. He is out with left knee inflammation. Will not travel on the upcoming five game road trip. Oh, now that's better than I was hoping for. I mean, it's not, obviously it's not conclusive. They said it's not conclusive, but it's like, there's a little glimmer of hope in there. What do you think? No, (laughs) I think that's second. I think that's second opinion. Yeah. They're waiting on a second opinion. Okay. Will you ready to move on in our questions? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. This is from Nick Hayes at Nick in PDX. Please inform Blazer fans that trading $27 million this season is the best option going forward, no matter if you get players back healthy or not. So can you explicitly state what you think that means and whether or not you agree? Well, it sounds like uh, trading Hassan Whiteside. Okay. (laughs) That's, that's what that means. And from what I've been able to gather and who I've been able to talk to and, you know, put it all together, boring a catastrophic meltdown and Portland unable to do quite literally anything, Hassan Whiteside will be traded. Okay. And that is I, the best case scenario because it will ensure that Portland gets a gets player in return? Something. Yes. That's that's entirely it. They need to get somebody and that's, in turn. And they're so far over the cap right now that even $27 million coming off the books doesn't give them enough space to really attract a free agent. Is that – do anything. So if they let Bayes and Whiteside's contracts fall off the book, it's worth $18 million. they will have $18 million in caps – estimated $18 million in cap space left. That's with seven players on the roster and one of those seven being Rodney Hood. Mm-hmm. So they have six players under contract that are playable and they have to f- fill out the rest of their roster, including getting a starting small forward. 
with $18 million. Mm -hmm. So um, that's next to impossible. Mm -hmm. So they they have to get something in return for both Bazemore and and Whiteside. That's just the reality of the situation. Um, Obviously, all the noise is around the same same guys we always hear. Um, And at this point, it's one of those things where you just kind of hope and pray that the, 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 the deal goes down and the fit works because so they have to do something with it. You said it was the most likely, but I didn't hear whether or not you thought it was the best option. It is. Okay. It is the best option. They, they, they have to like, as much as I don't want to see Kevin love on this team, if the only deal that came available at the last second of the trade deadline was the saw Whiteside for Kevin love, because they need to kick the can on allowing that contract flexibility and having somebody with years come onto the team. I would take Kevin love because that's what needs to happen. So he, so Kevin love comes on, they have Kevin love. They still have a large contract and We've really seen the last couple of years, even contracts that people say are impossible to move, they can still be moved. Every contract can be moved. Mm-hmm. Every single like, and that at least would provide them with the option. Yes, and like Kevin Love's deal, like people were talking about how it's going to cost this, that, and that you know extra for Kevin Love, and now you know you get reports that teams are actually telling Cleveland if you want us to take Kevin, it's going to cost a first. So, like, perception versus reality uh, of, as far as, like, what deals are around the league varies widely between uh, the public and what actually goes on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything else you want to say on that one? I just want it done, damn it. <laughs> really? So are you – I mean, is that – I'm not in any hurry. I'm just sick of talking about okay. that particular deal because, like, anybody's like, well, what if we – no. What if we – no. Well, maybe we – no. He's getting traded. Uh, so <laughs> like, am I hearing correctly that you're actually getting tired of hearing people talking about trades? No, that's why everybody I'm talking about getting tr- about trades. Specific it's, one. This specific one and the idea that they could they could, should, would keep Whiteside beyond the trade deadline. It is an asinine point to try to make. Do not try to make it. There is no functional reason to keep Hassan Whiteside beyond the trade deadline. Just, like what what that means for, for for team building purposes is insane. I just feel like every time we get to the point where that's what you're saying, that's exactly what ends up happening. <laughs> but I'm just in advanced feeling for you. If that in case is, is the case. I, I would probably have, if they didn't move Whiteside, I would probably have a meltdown similar or worse than what happened in 2016 in Vegas. One. Yeah. Okay. Well, like, I'll get a different co-host that week. <laughs> You know what's funny, Dan? It's like people talk to you about your, you know, you being negative and like, oh, if you want a different, you know, perspective, if you want a downer perspective. And like, I don't, I don't feel like you're negative. I feel like you love, love this team and that it just hurts you. I I feel like it it physically hurts you when they do things that don't make sense to you. No, it, it legitimately does. Like, okay, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of insight real quick as far as like, because I've had some people ask me like, why do you cover this team? Why do you, like, you seem like you hate this team. I had somebody tweet at me last night, like a gif of an empty field that says all the positive things Danny says about the Blazers. And I'm just like, I just spent literally hours talking about how much I love Damian Lillard and Anthony Simons and Yusuf Nurkic. Like, what are you talking about? But like, as much as I love this team, 
in my formative years, 14, 15, you know, up to like 18 years old, when I was just living and dying by this team, if the Blazers won, I would watch everything on Fox, on NBC, on ESPN, every post-game show known to man to take in every bit of content. If they lost, I couldn't do it. I could not watch, hear, listen, anything about this team at all. And even now, it's like – it's. <laughs> Now you I get do, to talk about it after they I, lose. Yeah, I do not. I, I, if you ever get Joe cornered, ask him how I am after a loss. Because I do not want to go out there and talk about how poorly some of these guys played or what happened or you know what's likely to come or what injury just happened. It sucks. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I do not enjoy it. And like this whole idea of, you know, this team and, and being frustrated with it, 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 it does. It bothers me. It really does. Like it, it, when I get done with the show, it takes me probably an hour and a half, two hours to, to like, especially after a bad loss to just kind of sort it out and be able to fall asleep. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't <laughs> so, think you're alone in that. I think even people who don't talk about it after the game, you know, we all have our different coping mechanisms after yes. a Blazers loss. But I, I think what, when people listen to you, they should know that you're coming from a place that you do love this team. And like, that is one thing that I have learned about you in all these years that we've been doing this. And it, you, you just take it very personally when they do things that are not in line with what you think they should be doing. And that's just, you know, this is how some people are. And it, the way it comes out is it makes it sound like you're really negative. Angry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's more like you're hurt. Oh, poor Dan. Well, now that we've had this therapy session, uh, let's let's get through the rest of our uh, questions. I think this one from Josh Simons, I think we addressed it already in our talk with Dan. Why are so many turning on stats this season? I didn't hear anything from them last year. I don't know. Do we have anything to add about that? Not really. I I do find a little bit weird. Like I know people lash out in seasons when the expectations are one thing and the results are another. But the the folks I keep saying like like the injuries aren't the biggest problem. Yes, they are. Period. Full stop. Just stop trying. Like when you start, I want to analyze everything as much as humanly possible. You know that about me, Tara. But what have I said about most this year? Well, I don't know what you want me to say. (laughs) Well, no, <laughs> you've said a lot of things about this year, but one thing that you've been consistent about, actually, this kind of goes to another question, but one of the things we've talked about for years is how lucky this team has been in terms of injuries. And this year it's all coming yeah, fast and all, hard. All at once. And when you have injuries like this that are more than just nicks and bruises and missing 10 games, 12 games here, there, season ending varieties. Um, it becomes very hard to evaluate things. And it's also almost pointless to really critically evaluate things. And some people were like, you should always strive to be better. Yes, you should. I, I don't disagree, but you also have to change how you value things, how you view things. Um, does it really matter how well Damon Whiteside are playing in the pick and roll when Whiteside is gone in mm, six weeks? Does it really, really matter? No, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so, like those kind of things, I'm just like, mm, it, it's it, it is what it is. Like, uh, do I wish things were better? Certainly. Am I making an excuse for it? No. It's just the reality of the situation is the likelihood of that pairing existing for more than just a couple more weeks 
doesn't really sit. So why are we going to hammer this point about something that is most likely going to change? Well, I, I think there's an additional element to it in terms of just like going back to the question of why are so many people turning on Stotts this season? I don't think that many people are, but I think it's getting amplified because there's a lot of people who disagree with that. And so they're like retweeting it or they're bringing it up in conversation. And so that just makes it, I think, I, I think it's probably not as much of a critical mass as a vocal minority. You know, I don't have any stats on that. <laughs> I don't have the data on that, but I kind of feel like it's, it's just people, you know, searching for what's going on and it just is louder than it actually is. I don't disagree. So, um, it, it's just, it's just frustrating, especially when you, you get these people in no matter what, what sport it is. And I, and I don't criticize people for having an opinion that's different than mine, but the idea that, you know, random guy off the couch, um, has more inside information than guys around the league. Like that's, it's a little hard for me to, to take that seriously when I talk to players, executives, agents, uh, other coaches around the league who are effusive in their praise of, of coach Stotts, mm-hmm. yeah. who call him a, a, a quite literal basketball genius and the things that he does like that combined with, I think people don't really understand. That's why I asked Dan the difference between a guy like Damian Lillard and the rest of the roster like the, the and this isn't to say that those guys are scrubs but when you're talking about guys that are 7 8 9 10 to 12 matching up with guys that are 3 like through 7 yeah. <laughs> that is a significant gap mm-hmm. that really exists because guys that are 3 4 and 5 are really the top 1% guys that are 1 and 2 are the top 0.1% that, that like that is a big, big gap, and those and it gets further and further the, the longer you go. And Portland's gap probably is a little bit more than normal because of the way the talent dispersal is, because of the way the money is with their team right now. And so it's very difficult to truly grasp and understand what roles these guys can play, what they should be expected to play, and what they're being asked to play and where those lines are actually being drawn. Because I think what the team is, has versus what the public has are two very, very different things. Okay, we're going to move on to the next question. Uh, you ready? Go for <laughs> I it. I don't want to cut you off, but we got to get through these. No, no, no. Okay, I, I, this I, is from... That's, that's, the, that's the overarching thing yeah. that I want to get out there for that. Okay, good. Uh, Bruce Caesar Bennett at Cease 25 says, is a white side trade coming soon? Watching the game last night, I it looked like Dame was getting upset with him at times. Maybe a trade like this to add defense on the wing. And here is what the trade is, and I have a slightly funny story about it. The trade proposal, I have to make it bigger because my eyes are old. And I believe I, it was white side for Marvin Williams, Michael Kidd, Grokis, yes. and somebody else was on uh, there? Hernan Gomez. Oh, that's right. Willie Hearn Gomez. But the funny thing about this is I couldn't remember who M. Williams was. I, I All I could think of was Mo Williams. I'm like, okay, Mo Williams is not in the league anymore. It's not Mo Williams. And so then, I, then I went to Google to look it up. And because of these stupid new um, all-star Google 
rule things. Oh, yeah, I yeah, almost yeah. voted for him for All-Star. There I was you like, go. wait, okay. what's going on? These All-Star Perfect. voting rules are so complicated. I just, I can't stand it. I want to go back to the old days where it was way simpler. But anyway. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like the ballots in the, in the arenas. That was the that was the way to do it. But, I don't need to go yeah, back that far, but like just like, no? you know, okay. the tweeting or whatever, but like the like go through here, do this. And then like Google is getting all involved. It's just way too complicated. And I almost voted for Marvin Williams, who I'm sure is a lovely person and, you know, probably is deserving of some votes. But um, I did not mean for that to happen. So what do you think about this trade? No. I mean, because. the thing is, it, it, even if you like those guys, even if you want to invest in those guys, every one of those guys is on an expiring deal. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of moving the Whiteside deal is to get somebody that it's allows Portland to maintain that financial flexibility going forward. So uh, I, I like it in the sense that it's different. It's outside the box. But I think that that's also a deal that's more focused on this year. Mm-hmm. I really – I cannot emphasize this enough to everybody. Stop trying to fix this season. That's not what the Blazers are looking to do. Okay. And I, I, I've got that on a good enough authority that that's, that's not the goal. So uh, as, as much as, as much as I don't want to shoot holes in anybody's thoughts or hopes, prayers and beliefs, but, um, if, but they're, they're, they're not looking to address those things this season. Now, if, if one of those guys a, was on a longer contract, that would be more in line with what you're thinking. Sure. Sure, I don't know if that's necessarily the guys that I would be targeting. I think those are more depth guys. I think they they need to use the white side deal to get another starter. Mm-hmm. Um, Arvin three or four years ago would have been a great move, I thought. Um, but I think we're a little bit beyond that. But the, I, I like the fact I do I do like and appreciate the fact that it is different names and it is a different way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've seen, so thank you for that. <laughs> Okay, last one. This is from Portland Bad Boy at Portland Bad Boy. Uh, the question is, what is it about this team or this region or the team's travel schedule that makes all these injuries happen? I don't believe in magical curses or the almighty WTF is happening. Bad luck. I think we addressed it a little bit earlier. I mean, if you look at – if you go to Welcome – the In Street Clothes, the blog that's all about um, uh, injury analysis – the Blazers have had a really good run, actually. The 2018-19 Blazers were, uh, over a five-year period, were the first in the NBA in terms of not losing players to injury. Yeah, it's their, their non-injury luck over the past four years has been unbelievable, mm-hmm. especially as it pertains to the top part of the, of the team. Mm-hmm. Like post West's post West Achilles injury, they were just healthy as could be. They did not have a serious major injury save the Nurk injury. Mm-hmm. That was it, and like that, that's that's unheard of over the course of like 500 games. Mm-hmm. So it, it was just bound to happen. It's just the compounding nature of everything hitting at the same time certainly sucks. Right, and it had been so long since this had been happening that it it just all comes rushing back to you (laughs) Mm -hmm. and you're like oh god no not again yeah i mean i'm I'm sure that you know the the excess travel the excess miles that the blazers have to cover i think these are all things that are taken into consideration and why i think that historically we should give a lot of credit to the training staff that there hasn't been yes more 
And the Blazers have been to the forefront of of sleep studies and um, body preparedness and recovery and all those kinds of things. They take more precautions than damn near any staff in the league. And that's not to say that you know that they're significantly better than any of their staff, but there's a reason why that things have have gone well. Um, as far as like not going well. I mean, Collins was a freak injury. Nurk was a freak injury. Hood was a freak injury. Like, it's just. Well, and also now look Scott, at some of the players who left the Blazers are now also injured. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who's got a, a bum knee. So, I mean, yeah, it's it's just it's just bad, bad news all around. That's really all it comes down to. It's it's super unfortunate. But you know what? The what you just read to us about Scowl is uh, a little more hopeful than I was thinking was going to come out today. You know, they're when did you say they're going to reevaluate? They're waiting for the swelling to go down. This is this is just slightly more information than we got when Zach hurt his shoulder when he was basically getting the second opinion. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's what this reads like is let's get a second opinion. And realistically, if I had to do my doctor diagnosis here on there, it's that it's not good news with his knee, whether it's uh, ACL or meniscus. I'm thinking probably there's probably a partial tear and they want to know what the idea is of, of can it be managed versus does he need surgery? Mm-hmm. I think it's, I think that's what we're looking at here. Um, definitely still in speculation mode. And yeah. I have to say the two and a half minutes that he was a starter last night were some of the happiest moments I can remember in a very long <laughs> time. I mean, you know how you love scale. You know that I have scale color glasses on at all times, um, which is not, a, which is a good color. I mean, it's a good color on <laughs> you and it's a good color on everybody's. So I was I was crushed. And it's going to be real interesting to see what the Blazers uh, do next. Can they get? a second injury exception or to do teams only get one? No, you can get as many as you need. Oh God, that's sad. (laughs) Well, hopefully they, they won't need it, but (sighs) I guess, I guess we'll see what happens. Do we have anything else we're going to cover today? Hopefully no more injuries. Okay. Well, I think that's going to about do it for us. Um, I'll just remind people that we do have a women's hoops and talks meetup coming up on January 5th. We're going to be watching the Blazers take on Miami and Myers Leonard. Uh, That should be interesting. He seems to really have been unleashed down in Miami. He's playing well. He's happy. (laughs) No, and I'm happy for him. Like he clearly is in a place where he's much much more happy with, with how things are going. So yeah. uh, that's good for him. Blazers do have, and that'll couple. be the back end of that long road trip. Yeah. Yeah. And the Blazers do have a couple winnable games coming up. Um, of course, against, uh, Phoenix, the Knicks and who's the other one, Washington. Um, okay. So real quick on those. So let me go ahead and get my Debbie Downer umbrella out. Um, <laughs> Phoenix, you're going to be shorthanded with some bodies for certain. New York, you're playing with a day off uh, on New Year's yeah. going into, into New York. Just, and an just, early so game. Knows, just so everybody knows, the Blazers are spending the night. They're spending New Year's in New York City. Yeah. So what could possibly go wrong there? Right. Uh, and the uh, Washington game, you better hit your damn shots. Right. Cause because they're not playing Washington's any defense, gonna but they're going to outscore you. Know? <laughs> yeah. So uh, there, there's my Debbie Downer moment of the night right there. Well, we're just trying to keep it realistic, trying to keep our expectations in line. Anything can happen. They still have to play these games, right? Anything can happen. Yeah. I mean, they, they've, they've been in games they shouldn't be. And they've, they've won, you know, won games that 
you know, I, and this also, team makes no sense right now. And I just, just yeah, <laughs> I'd say that against Utah and Lakers, they put on a good show. You know, it, it hasn't always been against, you know, poor teams. They haven't always been enjoyable to watch. But that <sighs> rally to come back from Utah, sure, I wish they hadn't gotten in that hole in the first place. But that fourth quarter was entertaining. And that game against the Lakers, that was entertaining. Yeah, no, listen, at, at this point, and I know this sounds so defeatist, but I really just want to watch entertaining basketball and watch Simon Zabella. Mm-hmm. Like those are the things that I'm invested in right now. I know I have to. Like, I'm I, struggling because I was enjoy, enjoying watching Scal develop, but I think I can transfer some of that onto Naz Little and Anthony. I think Anthony will probably become my new, uh, you know, my new whatever focus of my come, attention. Come on over. <laughs> we'll, we'll throw if you'll some more have me. We'll throw some more cookies in the oven. There's always All more right. room. Sounds good. All right. Well, you can find me on Twitter at TCB Biggs. You can find uh, my work on Blazers Edge. You can also find the Hoops and Talks podcast. Subscribe to the Blazers Edge podcast. You'll get the weekly podcast. You'll get the Women's Hoops and Talks podcast. And I'm going to go back to doing those uh, occasional preview episodes as well. Dan, go ahead and take us out of here. All right, folks, you can find me on social media at Danny Morang, at Danny Morang. Slight little twint change. Um, as well as on every post game for NBC Sports Northwest with Joe Simons and myself on, on Blazers Outsiders. Uh, we don't have anything kind of thing cooked up coming up because we just finished up the Rialto. So thank you to everybody who came by. We had groups of people come by literally every single night. And that is incredibly cool. So thank you all for coming out. It was awesome to be out there. Uh, if we do have something coming up, we'll be sure to let everybody know. But for the meantime, happy new years, be safe. Don't drink and drive all that good stuff for Tara, Danny. Thanks guys. Bye.